Tonight we're in Isaiah chapter 34 and chapter 35, which is a description of future judgment and future salvation. Chapter 34 and chapter 35 are, like we've seen in Isaiah, like two sides of the one coin. You have God's judgment on his enemies, on the, on the wicked, but then you also have his blessings and, and the restoration, salvation of his people. And one of the things that, that we've seen in Isaiah, just a, kind of a reminder of the way that the first half of Isaiah has flowed. In the first six chapters of Isaiah, we saw a pretty narrow focus on Judah and Jerusalem. But then chapter 7 through 12, that picture enlarges just a little bit, and you bring Israel and Syria into the picture. So you've got Judah and then Israel and Syria. Focus gets a little bit bigger. Then in chapter 13 to 23, what are sometimes called the oracles to the nations, that uh, lens gets even wider. And you see reference to Babylon and Egypt and Edom and and all of these nations that are kind of troublesome neighbors of Israel and Judah. And then in chapter 24 through 27, the, the lens expands as widely as it can go, which encompasses the whole world, the whole universe under God's authority and his power. And then in chapter 28 to 33, the major theme was trust God, not the nation's. Trust God, not in these political alliances that you have made for yourselves. Because the temptation for Judah was to put their hope in Egypt, to rescue them from Assyria. And the overriding message of those chapters is that people are going to fail you. These kingdoms, these nations, they're going to fail you. Your hope needs to be in God. And chapter 34 to 35, which we're looking at tonight, is kind of like the climax, kind of like the exclamation point on all of that, that theme of trust, trusting in God. And it's almost like chapter 34 and chapter 35 are the, the climactic statement of why God's people should put their trust in him and not in themselves or in other human strength. It's because God's going to judge the wicked and he is going to save those who fear him. So it's, that's, that's the ultimate reason why you should trust God. Because if you trust the nations, well, they're going to end up in doom. They're the ones going to be judged by the Lord. That's no sure foundation at all. Your sure foundation needs to be in the Lord because he's the only one that can truly save and rescue. So that's where chapter 34, 35 comes in. It's kind of like the, the exclamation point, the climax of this theme of trusting in the Lord. And so I've called this future judgment and future salvation. And what we see in chapter 34, verses 1 through 4, is a declaration of the Lord's anger and destruction of the nations. By the way, you may have seen it, but I did something a little bit different tonight. I put a little outline on the back of the prayer sheet. If you'd like to follow along, if you want to fill in the blanks, there should be pens in the pews, I think, if you'd like to do that. But uh, the first portion of chapter 34 has to do with the Lord's anger toward the nations and the fact that the, that God is going to judge 
the nations, and they will be destroyed by his mighty power. Verse 1 of chapter 34 is just a call to the nations. Take heed, pay attention, nations. This is what the Lord is going to do. Verse 1 says, come near, you nations, and listen. Pay attention, you peoples. Let the earth hear and all that is in it, the world and all that comes out of it. So basically, verse 1 is a sit up and take notice. This is what the Lord is declaring. This is what he's going to do. And he's specifically addressing the nations generically, which encompasses the whole world, right? The Lord is the sovereign over all the earth. Now, what's interesting about this is that it's a direct, the way it's worded, it's a direct address to the nations. But who's going to be hearing this message from Isaiah? Who's going to be reading this message? It's going to be the Jewish people, right? It's going to be the people that Isaiah is preaching to. It's going to be the people that that receive the written word. Now, that's not to say that if other nations hear this message, that they should not respond to it. Certainly they should. They should respond in repentance and turn to the Lord and trust. But I think the primary beneficiary of this message is God's people. That, that they, in this call to the nations, that the Lord is going to destroy the nations, the people of Judah find hope in that. They find hope and comfort in that God is going to make things right. He's going to bring justice to their enemies and their oppressors. But pay attention, nations. And then verses 2 and 3 describe the destruction of the armies of these nations. And it is a complete annihilation, a complete destruction. The Lord is angry with all nations. His wrath is on all their armies. He will totally destroy them. He will give them over to slaughter. Now, for most countries, most nations... That is the symbol of their strength, isn't it? The symbol of their strength. It's a symbol of pride. Even in the modern day, you, in a way, determine the strength of a nation in the world by the strength of its military force. And so the primary players in the world right now are the ones with the strongest militaries. And they're the ones exerting the most influence on the world stage. And so it becomes a symbol of pride, of strength of those nations and not only that, but also when you factor into it that in the pagan world, the, uh, the strength of a nation and the strength of its army was directly connected with the worship of their false gods. That uh, their army was viewed to be empowered by, led by whatever their patron god was of their nation. And so if their army lost, it's because their god got defeated in battle by this nation's god. In battle, but it was their it was a, a a symbol of their strength of their pride. And what verses two and three describe is none of the nations of the earth can can hold a candle to the power and the strength of the Lord. And this was in the ancient world, chariots and swords and catapults and whatever they had. But even today, you know, planes and ships and nuclear missiles still can't handle can't hold a candle to the Lord, right? He is infinitely powerful. And this description of the destruction of the armies of the nations 
while there may be aspects of it that, that came to pass in the near term to Isaiah, I think ultimately it has to be fulfilled at the end of days, that when the Lord is bringing judgment, final concluding judgment to, to the wicked. And this is just describing that the Lord is going to have ultimate power and ultimate sovereignty over them. Their slain will be thrown out. Their dead bodies will stink. The mountains will be soaked with their blood. It's a very graphic description, isn't it? But it's a description of complete and total victory by the Lord. That there's no force on earth that can overthrow the power of the Lord. And then, in addition to that, we have in verse 4, it brings it to an even higher cosmic universal level. Because verse 4 says, All the stars in the sky will be dissolved, and the heavens rolled up like a scroll. All the starry host will fall like withered leaves from the vine, like shriveled figs from the fig tree. And so it this talks about not only the destruction of the, of the armies of the nations of the world, but now even in cosmic proportions, the, the sky rolling up like a scroll, stars falling from the sky. And we see elements of this even in the New Testament, where, for example, in Second Peter 3, Peter says that the elements will melt with fervent heat when the coming of the day of the Lord comes. We see cosmic signs like this in the book of Revelation with the end of time. And so this is typical type language of apocalyptic, at, eschatological, at the end of time, when, when God brings his final judgment to, to bear. And one of the commentaries I read, I'm not sure if this was in Isaiah's mind or not as he is writing this, but in some of the ancient worlds, uh, some of the pagan peoples that surrounded Judah, like Babylon, like Assyria, like Egypt, they specifically attached significance, religious significance, to the stars and to the planets. And so the disappearance of a star was like the defeat of one of their gods. And so to have God wipe the sky clean of stars is basically saying there are no other gods that can rival the one true Lord of heaven and earth. So verse, the first four verses are just complete, uh, complete control of the universe by the Lord and his justice, his wrath coming to bear on the wicked of the world. Then the second part of chapter 34 specifically addresses Edom the Lord's anger and judgment of Edom. This is verse 5 through verse 17. And some commentators have asked the question, okay, why, why do we go from the world and all the nations to kind of narrowing in our focus on just one nation, on the Edomites? And they take up the rest of the focus of chapter 34. What's significant about Edom? And... Most of the commentaries I read suggested that, that Edom is like a representative of what God is going to do to all the nations. So it's not that the rest of the nations have faded from the view. They're still there in the picture in chapter 34. But he's using Edom specifically as like a, a representative of what God's going to do to all the nations. And the reason Edom is probably chosen is because Edom was a perpetual thorn in the side of Israel throughout their history. Now you can go all the way back to numbers chapter 20 
when they haven't even yet entered into the promised land fully, and you can start to see the, the Edomites begin to give them trouble. And then that runs all the way through the, the whole kingdom era, the divided kingdom. And even beyond Isaiah's time, you have the Edomites helping the Babylonians to sack Jerusalem in 586 B.C., which Obadiah speaks about when he talks about the destruction of Edom. So the Edomites were like a perpetual uh, hostility, perpetual thorn in the side to, to Israel throughout their history. And so it's almost like they're used as a representative sample of the, the wickedness and the oppressiveness and the hatred directed toward God's people by all the nations. And God's going to bring judgment on, on Edom, and like he brings judgment on them, he's going to bring judgment on all the nations that are opposed to him and his people. So in verses 5 through 7, we see the sword of the Lord. The Lord depicted as a warrior bringing justice and vengeance on his enemies. Verse 5 says, my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Probably a reference back to verse 4 with the, the stars rolling up, the sky rolling up as a scroll and the stars. So my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens and now it descends in judgment on Edom. The people I have totally destroyed. And the word that is used there in verse 5 is a word that we see sometimes throughout the Old Testament. And it's a description of that which is totally dedicated to the Lord for destruction. And the classic example of that is uh, the city of is it Jericho, city of Jericho, where God had told the people, do not take anything from this. This city and its people and all of its possessions are totally dedicated to the Lord in the sense of this, it belongs to him. The whole thing is to be destroyed. Don't take anything from it. But we know Achan sinned and, and broke that commandment. It's because he took something that was specifically set apart by God for destruction. Well, this is now said of Edom, that they are specifically set apart by God for destruction. The sword of the Lord is bathed in blood. It is covered with fat, the blood of lambs and goats, fat from the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. So now we bring in sacrificial language, uh, like the bringing of an animal to an altar for sacrifice. Basra is the capital of Edom, so that's the reference there. But, but what's the significance of the sacrificial language? Perhaps the way Isaiah means it is that Edom is like a sacrifice for the nations, in a sense. That, or, in another sense, it could be saying that that because the nations have rejected God and his call and his grace, then they will have to bear the penalty for their sins themselves. And in a sense, they will become their own sacrifice to their own destruction. But it is bringing in this sacrificial type language, but the end result is their total destruction at the hand of the Lord. And the wild oxen will fall with them, the bull calves and the great bulls. Their land will be drenched with blood and the dust will be soaked with fat. And so again, the, the reference to bull calves and great bulls, some say it's, a, it's a, a reference to their leaders. Others say it's just a reference to their strength and their pride. But either way, it is their complete undoing 
that is described. And, and there will be nothing left of them. Total destruction by the Lord. A day of vengeance in verse 8. A day of vengeance. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of retribution to uphold Zion's cause. This gives the reason why the sword of the Lord is directed against Edom. Why is the Lord bringing judgment on Edom? It is because of justice. It's because of justice. The idea of vengeance, the idea of retribution, the idea of Zion's cause is kind of a legal, legal type language. It is the idea that in law, Zion, Judah, has been wronged. They, they've had crimes committed against them, and the Lord is the judge, and he has ruled in favor of Zion, and he's ruled Edom guilty. And so, therefore, justice, vengeance, retribution is going to be applied to Edom because of their mistreatment of God's people, which results in their complete desolation. Verse 9 through 15. Edom's streams will be turned into pitch, her dust into burning sulfur, her land will become blazing pitch, reminiscent of the language of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. It will not be quenched night or day, its smoke will rise forever. From generation to generation it will lie desolate, no one will ever pass through it again. The desert owl and screech owl will possess it, The great owl and the raven will nest there. God will stretch out over Edom the measuring line of chaos and the plumb line of desolation. And the idea of the birds that are mentioned there is he's painting a picture. He's painting a picture of complete desolation of a barren wasteland. Basically, it's no longer habitable for people. Now it's only habitable for unclean birds, predators, and scavengers who will hunt their prey and will come and feed on the dead. That, that's the image that's left of Edom. It's just, it's a haunt. It's total, total emptiness and desolation, only suitable for scavenging and uh, carnivorous birds. And they will continue from generation to generation to be there. So it's a, it's a perpetual curse, if you will, on, on Edom. And there at the end, what's interesting about that is the measuring line of chaos and the plumb line of desolation. Those are measuring tools, tools of balance, tools of measurement that would be used for construction, right? Typically, those would be used of construction. And earlier in Isaiah, in chapter 28, that is how those tools were used, speaking of God's new city, that that there would be Good construction happening here. God building this city. But here, it's described in terms of destruction, isn't it? So what is normally used as construction, as good, God's going to use for destruction. To tear Edom down. Verse 12, her nobles will have nothing there to be called a kingdom. All her princes will vanish away. Thorns will overrun her citadels, nettles, and brambles, her strongholds. She will become a haunt for jackals, a home for owls. And you can even see some elements of the curse of Genesis 3 coming in here. The idea of thorns and thistles, thorn bushes. It's almost like God's judgment is like an intensification of the curse. And 
getting back to like Genesis 1 verse 2, when it says that the earth was formless and void. Those words are used in this passage. In fact, in verse verse 11, chaos and desolation are the exact words that are used in Genesis 1-2, empty and, and formless. And so it's almost like when God's judgment comes on Edom, it will be like an intensification of the curse and almost like God is uncreating Edom. He's uncreating Edom, bringing it back to a, a pre-order form, if you will. Desert creatures will meet with hyenas and wild goats will bleat to each other. There the night creatures will also lie down and find for themselves places of rest. The owl will nest there and lay eggs. She will hatch them and care for her young under the shadow of her wings. There also the falcons will gather each with its mate. So just a, a continuation of that same image of ravenous carnivorous birds. And this is now their home. But then in verses 16 and 17, it extends that image of these birds making it their home, but communicates a very important point about the sovereignty of the Lord. And that is that this will happen. Everything that the Lord is describing here about the judgment on Edom and by extension, the judgment on the nations, this will happen because the Lord's sovereignty is certain. So it says in verse 16, look in the scroll of the Lord and read. None of these will be missing. Not one will lack her mate. Referring back to the mate of the falcon, the mate of the owl. For it is his mouth that has given the order and his spirit will gather them together. In other words, what the Lord says, it will happen. What the spirit of the Lord brings about will come to fruition. And the idea of the scroll here, there's different ways of understanding it, but I I tend to agree with those who take it as the scroll, perhaps referring to even what Isaiah is prophesying here. And almost like Isaiah is challenging people to, to corroborate the sovereignty of the Lord by coming back later and reading his words in the scroll of the Lord and seeing that it was fulfilled. Seeing that what, what the Lord has decreed is sure. And then verse 17, he allots their portions. His hand distributes them by measure. They will possess it forever and dwell there from generation to generation. Oh, it's still referring to the birds of verse 15. But what's significant about it is I think Isaiah's point is that the Lord in his sovereignty can allot the portions, the dwelling places of birds, but also of people. And that, that's a necessary implication because if birds and falcons and owls now live here, these people no longer do. So it is the Lord's sovereignty to allot the, the portions that belong to the birds and the portions that belong to people. And he is sovereign over all the peoples. And Paul makes the same point in Acts chapter 17 when he's talking to the Greeks in Athens He says, the Lord is the one who has determined our habitation, the places where we should live. So this is just an affirmation of the sovereignty of the Lord that, you know, people choose where to live. But behind that is the sovereignty of the Lord. And he's directing all these things that happen. So judgment on the nations, judgment on Edom, 
their hostility toward Judah, but that's a representative sample of what of God's judgment on the world. Now, his blessings. This is the other side of the coin. Chapter 35. With the, with the wrath of God brought to bear on the wicked, then comes salvation to the Lord's people. And so the Lord's salvation and blessing will come to Zion. Verses 1 and 2 describe a picture of from dust to glory. It's almost like an exact reverse of chapter 34. It's like chapter 34 takes Edom and brings and turns it into a barren wasteland. And now what it's saying about God's people is it's going to take it from a barren wasteland and turn it into a lush fertile field where crops will grow and people will feed. So the desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given it the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. And so basically he starts talking about the wilderness, the desert, and in that barren place where there's dust, you're going to have forests and fields. Forests like Lebanon and Carmel, grassy fields like Sharon, and and it all will point to and be a, a, uh, a proof of the glory of the Lord in what he is doing in the midst of his people. So from dust to glory. And then the salvation of the Lord. He will renew the land, but he will also renew the people. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. That is a powerful message. And if I were to, if I were to say, what is the heart of chapter 34 and 35? It's these verses right here. Where in Isaiah, speaking to the people of his day. Now remember, from Isaiah's time, from the time of the, the people of Judah in his day, this looked like it was so far off. And this did not look like a reality at all. Because in their day, Judah is not strong. Jerusalem is surrounded by enemies. They're, they're overrun by peoples. They're paying tribute to foreign powers. Assyria is threatening them. Their, their knees are shaking. Their hands are feeble. They're discouraged. They're despondent. They don't see hope on the horizon. And yet what Isaiah is saying to them and giving them this prophecy is because of what the Lord will do, there is hope. And there's an important message in there for us as well. And that is just like the people of Judah or Jerusalem of that day, we might be tempted to base our hope or our confidence in the circumstances of what's going on. And for the people of Judah, because of what was going on in their circumstances, they had no hope. They had no confidence. They had no strength. But what Isaiah is telling them is don't base your confidence or your joy or your strength in the circumstances of life. Base your confidence, your strength, your hope in the promises of the Lord and what he will do. 
And so he is telling them what the Lord is going to do so that they will have hope in it and so that they will be motivated then to be strong and to strengthen their hands and to put the fear out of their hearts because their Lord is strong and here is what he has promised. That applies just as much to us today, December 12th, 2018, as it did 2,700 years ago in Isaiah's time. Because there are things that go on in our world that if we were to base our hope on our circumstances, we would be without hope. But our hope isn't based on our circumstances. It's based on the promises of the Lord. And so Isaiah is saying that to them. Trust God. He's going to come with salvation. He's going to come with vengeance, with justice, and he will come to save you. So be strong. God's going to heal those who are broken. The healing of the broken. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. So, God's going to bring renewal to the land. He's going to come and bring justice and salvation for his people. A part of his blessings are going to be a reversal of the curse. So judgment for Edom, for the nations, meant an intensification of the curse and uncreation. But when God comes for his people in blessing, it is the removal of the curse and a return to Eden, to perfect creation. And Jesus, when he came in his ministry, and he healed the blind, and he healed the deaf, and he caused the lame to walk, he quoted this portion of Isaiah as a comfort to John the Baptist. And you can read that in Matthew 11 or in the Gospel of Luke. And Jesus basically quoting this passage to say, the Messiah is here. The kingdom of God has come near, and indeed it did in the person of Jesus Christ. And so in his first coming, Jesus was bringing aspects of the kingdom, wasn't he? He was bringing his kingdom with him. And these are aspects of the coming kingdom of God. And there were people who experienced healing and sight and having their ears opened and being able to walk for the first time in their lives. That was just a foretaste of what will happen for all of God's people in the kingdom to come, when there will be no more tears, no more crying, no more death, no more blindness, no more those who are deaf, no more lame, no more those who are mute and can't speak, they will all be renewed, won't they, in the coming kingdom of the Lord. So what Jesus did in down payment or in token, if you will, in his first coming, he will fulfill in completion in his second coming, when all of God's people experience that renewal, that healing from brokenness. You will have a renewal of creation. Water will gush forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. That's the exact opposite of what he said about Edom, wasn't it? Edom's going to become a barren wilderness where jackals live. For God's people, it's going to be the reverse. It's going to become a place of Green grass, fields, trees, blossoms, fruitful vines. The way of holiness. The way of holiness. In that place, in God's Zion, a highway will be there. 
It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. The key aspect in verses 8 through 10 with the idea of this highway is that a highway has been prepared for God's people to come home. The, the picture is a, a reunion, a reunification, a regathering of God's people in the new future Zion, the new future Jerusalem. And just like today, if you want to move quickly and unobstructed, you get on a highway, right? You don't have to worry about stoplights. You don't have to worry about stop signs. Traffic is hopefully flowing smoothly, unless you're in downtown Birmingham or downtown Atlanta, right? But the idea of a highway is clear, clear, make a straight path, make a level path for people to come. And, and it is a way that is called holiness. Why? Because only those who are holy will walk on it. Meaning that when God brings about this new Zion, when he brings about this restoration that chapter 35 is talking about, not only is it going to be a physical restoration of the dirt of the ground or of the crops and the fields or just a physical restoration of the eyes of the blind or the ears of the deaf, it is going to be an inward spiritual restoration too, isn't it? That in the new kingdom of the Lord, in the new Zion, the new Jerusalem, only those who have been transformed by the renewing grace of God will be there. In essence, those who are glorified. Those who have been glorified by, by being redeemed, saved by the grace of God, and then glorified and brought into this new existence in the kingdom of God, there will be no unclean there, no fools there, only those who are holy, who walk in the way of the Lord. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there. Those who have been rescued, those who have been bought by God from slavery, brought to him, they will walk there. And those the Lord has rescued will return. There's that idea of coming back, of reunion. And you see this idea of regathering, of coming home to Zion. You see it all throughout the prophets, but you also see it in Jesus in Matthew 24, where he says God's going to send his angels and he's going to gather his elect from the four winds of the earth. The idea of coming home, of returning. Then the very last part of verse 10 is you see the joy of the redeemed. This is, this is like the last picture that Isaiah leaves us with in this portion. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. It's almost like John saying, there'll be no more tears. No more crying. No more death. And that's the last picture he leaves us with. And that is, isn't that a glorious picture? Everlasting singing, everlasting joy in the presence of the Lord, the joy of the redeemed. And it's in that hope that we live. We have a future hope. And that hope is built on a sure, sovereign, certain God who controls all of history. That hope is built on the true, unfailing promises of God. And so don't look to your circumstances. Don't look to what the events are going on in the world. Don't look to the frustrations and difficulties that are happening in your life. Look to the promises of God. 
It's in that that we hope, in him and what he has done, is doing, and will accomplish. That's where our hope is. And so I hope this is encouraging to you. Now, chapter 34 and chapter 35, I think Isaiah is pointing to the end of time. So what we just read, I think, is still yet to be fulfilled. This is still on the horizon for us. We're still looking forward to God's judgment and vengeance on the wicked. As Jesus would put it, the left hand and the goats going into everlasting condemnation. And we're still looking forward to the joy that's described in chapter 35 of entering into Zion with joy and singing. Those are the sheep on the right hand who go into the everlasting joy of the Lord. So this is still coming. This is still future for us even. And we long for it. We long for it and our hope is in it. And it's that faith and that hope that drives us in the present.